Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast exploring the future of mental health and wellness. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Serebrinsky. We're partners at SciMed Ventures, a fund investing in psychedelic medicine and frontier mental health. Oysters, clams, spinach, watercress. What, if anything, do these foods have in common? They are the top foods for your mental health, according to Dr. Drew Ramsey. Drew is a psychiatrist and proponent of a field called nutritional psychiatry. He believes that the food we eat and how we eat them can have dramatic impact on our mental health. Drew is the author of numerous books, including Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. He's the founder of the Brain Food Clinic in New York City, offering treatments and consultation for depression, anxiety, and emotional wellness. And he's an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons. In today's episode, we'll discuss Drew's research on the link between food and mental health. We'll discuss what startup opportunities exist in this new category. And we'll explore how modern psychiatry might be transformed by the most ancient thing we do, eating food. Let's get to our conversation with Dr. Drew Ramsey. wanted to start out with a specific question, which is, if you had to eat one meal every day for mental health, what would it be? Probably wild salmon with pesto. Why is that? Well, if I only get one meal, I'm going to need a primary source of a lot of protein and fat to be what I call keto-ish. I'm looking to really focus on high-quality protein, high-quality fat, particularly omega-3 fats, and got to like have a little... A little secret, and my secret is probably pesto, because with pesto, you start filling in some of those other essential nutrients for mental health. Pesto, I've got nuts, olive oil, basil, and probably another leafy green and garlic. I'm beginning to fill in this nutritional profile. I'd wash it down with a kombucha if you let me. How about that? And it links to some of the research that you've done. You wrote a paper about the antidepressant food scale where you did a meta-analysis of many food groups and basically looking at which foods are uh, basically healthiest for, or not healthiest, but which food groups are, or excuse not even which food groups, but which foods are best for our mental health. Would love if you could just give a brief overview of that analysis and how it ultimately led you to your answer of pesto. So this was a paper that created what's called a nutrient profiling system. Laura Lachance, who's a psychiatrist, saw me present at the American Psychiatric Association annual conference in New York. That was 2014. Laura and I started working together around the idea that no one in psychiatry really had defined the idea of brain food well. We had a lot of influencers talking about blueberries and wild salmon. But when you think about like, what's the real science behind does a food help with mental health? That's one of the most important questions for uh, those of us in clinical practice. And there wasn't evidence about food. So we started looking at all of the scientific literature, really, with a, a very basic question. First, what nutrients matter? We started with brain health, but that's too vague for science. What, what nutrients matter for depression? And using standardized levels of evidence where you kind of uh, grade how much evidence there is for an idea, we were able to find 12 nutrients where there's significant evidence, both in the prevention of depression and in the treatment of depression, that these nutrients have a role. Things, you know, usual, so zinc, vitamin B12, omega-3 fats. 
we then asked a really simple question. What foods in the known natural food universe here on earth have the most of these 12 nutrients per 100 calories? And when we called these, there's our antidepressant food scale. The top uh, animal food is an oyster and the top plant food is watercress. And most people have not spent their lives eating oysters and watercress. And that's really how nutritional psychiatry should work. And how, if you look at the antidepressant food scale, three of the top five foods are bivalves, mussels, clams, and oysters. And, you know, as a clinician, then curious, are those part of your diet? If so, why? Why not? How do you like them? What challenges do you have with them? It's an open source paper. Anyone can access it. It was the World Journal of Psychiatry. And in some ways, that paper was, I hoped, a conversation starter. But it was really to ask that provocative question because no one had ever created a nutrient profiling system around brain health or mental health. If you think about like goals for nutrition, we generally tend to focus on disease prevention in medicine. And so part of being a, a psychiatrist is really getting interested in effective behavioral change and what are the barriers to that for people. And then how do we approach something complex like nutrition in a way that has Say less guilt and shame, more joy, creativity, connection. Mm. So that, that's the antidepressant food scale. Wild fish, wild seafood is really one of the top food categories. It's easy for us to eat red meat three or four times a week. You eat a lot of red meat, you have an increased risk of depression. The antidepressant food scale in some ways supports this notion really of seafood being a top nutrient for mental health and brain health or top food category. And so I have this little rhyme, seafood, greens, nuts and beans, and a little dark chocolate. How's your seafood consumption been? Not really. <laughs> I love sushi. I like those weird rolls where it's three different types of fish. It's like salmon and tuna and shrimp tempura, but then also avocado and then also tobiko and a spicy mayo. That's me in a nutshell. Okay. All right. Yeah, so I think that's a really great order. And it's interesting when you touch on one of the rules of nutritional psychiatry, which is us thinking about diversity. And as much as if you're a big wild salmon eater and you're always eating wild salmon, yeah, I get a little curious on anchovies, sardines, tuna, rainbow trout, the other fish in the sea. You mentioned tobiko, really one of the underutilized brain superfoods when you think about a fish row is just phenomenal. And if you were my patient, these are kind of some of the ways I'd want to celebrate some of the wins with you. Well, Mateus was my patient. I'd be like, oh, well, tell me about you and seafood. And not with like a shame and blame of Mateus. Your brain will rot without seafood. But much more, maybe Mateus is a vegan. And he's uh, just totally uh, outraged by what's happening with the oceans. That's a patient I'm not going to be like, wild salmon, dude. And you got to get rid of those ethics problems, right? That's somebody who, if I'm going to be an appropriate physician, I'm going to think, okay, great. Thanks for letting me know that. Sounds like no seafood. Let's think about omega-3 fats. You've been struggling with depression. That's not part of your diet. That's an interesting nutrient when it comes to anxiety and depression. So the way that nutritional psychiatry really hopes to be a, an overlay and a way of giving people new tools when it comes to managing their mental health. Yeah, that is one of the top themes that I'm interested in covering today. The idea of how to make this more accessible, how to get more patients 
to have access to nutritional psychiatry and dietary interventions or nutritional interventions, so to speak. Before we go there, we talked about the food scale and the word nutrients came up so many times. What is the relationship? A very basic question, which is what's the relationship between nutrients and food and mental health? Like, how does this work? Is it that I eat something that's tasty and I get happy? Is there something that's deeper than that? Definitely works that way, Matez. Um, so I have a, a video up on my YouTube channel that gets into the, the nine mechanisms. And when we mention nutrients, things like vitamin B12, certainly there are a lot of individuals who aren't getting enough of certain nutrients in their daily diet, what is called the nutrient insufficiency rate. So if you look at something that's very important for mental health, like vitamin E is what's called a fat-soluble nutrient. Your brain's mainly made of fat. And so in some ways, we have this very combustible set of fats, omega-3 fats, oxidize very easily, i.e. burn. And so you're really having to have a lot of antioxidant power up there. One of the most powerful antioxidants out there, especially antioxidant that dissolves in fat is vitamin E. So then we get to the question, what are the favorite sources of vitamin E? I have no idea. Yeah. It blew me away. I didn't know either. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand olive oil, avocados, sunflower seeds are great places to start. Barley has all their actually eight forms of vitamin E, but it, it kind of blew me away. I trained at a top 20 medical school, Indiana University, the largest medical school in the nation. Great medical school. I trained at Columbia Psychiatry, known as the top psychiatry training programs in the world. We didn't talk about that. How can I be effective in taking care of people's brains? If I have no idea whether they eat vitamin E or not, or if they eat wild fish or not, or what if, uh, you know, somebody's struggling with depression, they just wake up and they don't eat breakfast. Yeah. Or put yourself in my shoes. You're taking somebody with really dark suicidal depression and they're just living on fast food. There, there's stuff to do there. In terms of then thinking, how does that work? So one, there's specific mechanisms of nutrients, right? One way that we understand depression and, and anxiety and other mental health disorders are, are working is we, we've now begun to incorporate the idea of inflammation. Inflammation, there's a lot of different ways to think about it, but one way to think about inflammation is you're not putting out fires in your brain because the brain is very, again, filled with lots of free radicals and oxidation happening. I call vitamin E like literally a firefighter because that's what it does. It sits on a lipid membrane and it, and it absorbs free radicals. Other ways that it works besides nutrient insufficiency, thinking some of the new science in mental health, thinking about the microbiome and fermented foods. So if you have not been eating any fermented foods, you were born by a cesarean section, you got a lot of antibiotics as a kid, the bacteria that live in your gut are going to be different than a person who had a vaginal birth, had a lot of breastfeeding as an infant, like grew up on a farm rolling around in the dirt and hadn't had a lot of antibiotics. The diversity, the, the number and different types of bacteria in your gut also indicate there's a genetic diversity. They estimate there are about 2 million unique genes in the bacteria in our guts compared to there's only 27,000 human genes. Like most of the genetic material you're looking at right now is bacterial. And so, again, how do you harness that clinically? There's lots of buzz about probiotics. There's lots of buzz about the microbiome, but really it's a very simple thing. When you're sitting with patients, you ask them about fermented foods and you get curious whether they've tried any. And most people say no. We're talking a little bit about how fermented foods help diversify the microbiome. And so 
uh, th- that in terms of like how it works, there are new mechanisms like inflammation, the microbiome, another is called neuroplasticity. We also have serotonin or dopamine. You know, that's all made of food. Right? You don't make dopamine without tyrosine. You don't get tyrosine unless you eat protein. Right? You can't make serotonin without iron and tryptophan. You, If you don't eat those over time, it, it makes uh, it much harder to make some of these basic building blocks. That's where some of these classic nutrients like folate or vitamin B12, we, we actually check them in all patients. If you're a good psychiatrist and mental health professional, because we know that they cause depression. That part that we're missing is in, in medicine is most physicians and most patients don't know where you find folate. Top source of folate, one of them is lentils. The other is asparagus. And helping patients know this stuff. And, and then the last group of mechanisms, I think, is around the psychology. I call it the food SIBO effect, where if I'm struggling with depression and anxiety and, and I don't feel my meds are maybe doing 100% for me and, and my psychotherapy is helping, but psychotherapy is hard, right? I, I have some choices that I can make when I'm in the grocery store. I have some choices I can make when I'm meal planning. Less fries, more quinoa bowls and salads and fish, less cake and pizza and even kombucha and more water and beans and greens. And that feels really good. The way that that those little choices day in, day out, as they build up, and it feels good in a way that I just think is very empowering for patients. Yeah. So you you mentioned that psychotherapy is a lot of work, which I agree. (laughs) It it also feels to me that eating healthy is work, right? Because of our modern society, because of all the temptations that we have around, because of what's easy in a supermarket center aisles. So one kind of question that if someone may have dysregulated gut microbiota or deficiencies in vitamins and minerals or nutrients, they could just take supplements, right? It may not be like that, that you can just supplement your way out of unhealthy diet. So can you share a little bit more about that? And one of the main reasons why this is really interesting to me is that as investors, a lot of what we try to do is how can we make something more scalable? How can we expand the market that can access one of these interventions? What is the common, lowest common denominator in some of these things? I don't think there's a lot of self-love or good date nights or like deep human connections over taking supplements. Like I've never seen a couple go out and be like, oh my God, the supplements we took last time. So awesome. It was the best night. It tasted amazing. So I think when we reduce human health to supplements and when nutrition gets kind of focused on supplements, we end up in that kind of rut of nutritionism. And I would, and I think to your question, why can't we take supplements just to probiotic and the nutrients is that food's more than nutrition. And that part of what we're talking about is, you know, which gets spoken about in the wellness world a lot, you know, food is information, but a lot of times that's information for your body to digest. And we mean the food is nutrients, like your body gets information that you're eating nutrients. And, and that's certainly part of the information, but I think there's other information, which is around living according to a set of values that's hard to scale. We've tried to scale in terms of disinformation being really one of the the early teams that we're thinking about. So it's been really interesting to see more of a system, I would say, evolve in terms of how people are thinking about food and mental health. But as we've offered five, four books and three e-courses, what sort of struck me is it really comes down to helping an individual with motivation and with clarification around values. 
And that a lot of the times when we're talking about scalability, we're talking about decreasing cost and increasing efficiency. There's almost becomes a bit of a dialectic between the new, the modern, the soylent drinkers and the supplement takers and the biohackers and longevity people and a lot of fear mongering in this world, right? The original studies in nutritional psychiatry looked at it, it divided dietary pattern into three categories, traditional, Western, and modern. And all the focus got on the results was how a Western diet reduced the risk of depression and anxiety. This is a Felice Jackis first study ever in the nutritional in the American Journal of Psychiatry. But there's also a category of a modern diet. And it wasn't really clear that the modern diet, which they defined as red, lots of red wine and tofu, and it, it wasn't really clear there was a lot of mental health benefit to that diet either. And so we're, we're at this really interesting point in history, right? We're starting to lab grow meat. We're going to see this mashup of AI and nutrition, which is going to be quite interesting. What we know is that most of the antidepressants that are being prescribed are still being prescribed by PCPs, primary care practitioners. And my guess is that one of the reasons why that is the first-line treatment for uh, mental health disorders is that an AC treatment to deliver, right? You just write a prescription and it gets... And when we think of dietary interventions or nutritional interventions, it's more of what you said, where there's no there's no quick fix or there's no shortcut. Yeah, you know, it's funny. As we were talking about, I was thinking, part of also I think what gets missed is nutrition is really simple. This morning I had some eggs and a coffee. You know, for lunch I'm going to have, I, I don't know, I haven't had much. I'll have, I have a handful of pistachios and I'll try and find some leafy greens or some vegetables somewhere tonight for dinner. Oh, we'll have some wild salmon with pesto <laughs> to be on brand or a steak, or there's also, I think the practicality of, it's not just me and all my brain food. I've got a, a wife and I've got two kids who they need to go to bed full and with nutrient dense food, but there's also just the, the practicality of that. I think your question about scalability and SSRIs, I, I like that you bring up because SSRIs get such a bad rap. And when it comes to efficiency, scalability, and cost, th there's never been anything in the mental health marketplace that's come even close to the SSRI. And I don't want to deny there's lots of problems with them, both in terms of, I would say, efficacy and the generalizability of efficacy. But when it comes to like tolerance, one in four women over the age of 60 takes an SSRI in America. So it, it's a really interesting spot. When you look at the Prozac, for a year of treatment costs under $20. And that depression is the most disabling illness worldwide in America it means it is the number one drag to the economy, bar none, period. And you have something that effectively treats it for $5 a year. There is something about our treatments and the way we're delivering it that isn't working and I think is obscuring. If you think that the ebb of an antidepressant plus a, a good quality psychotherapist is upwards of 70% for depression. Some people say 80. Uh, that, that, it, it doesn't feel like we have a mental health crisis on our hands because we don't have effective tools for treatment. And, and I think that then when you start adding, oh, let's add psychotherapy, maybe an SSRI when needed, good management of sleep, helping with nutrition, helping with movement in a more active way than we do in medicine, you should exercise more and feel more guilty that you don't, right? You put those things together, you begin to add on the synergistic effect, right? When you see that exercise is as effective as Zoloft, one of our popular antidepressants at 18 months in a clinical trial. Uh, great. Let's start both of those right away because you want to have a number of, you want to have a number of things working at once, ideally. Mm. 
What tests do you recommend to determine a healthy diet or deficiencies in a diet? Well, I recommend a good history in the sense that if I talk to you and you don't eat any seafood or fermented foods, I don't need to send a $1,000 test on your microbiome to tell me it's not as diverse as it would be if you ate fermented foods and more plants. Same things with omega-3s. I don't need to test your omega-3 index if you're not eating any seafood. And then it, it, especially, I think one of the things that's happening is as the world of metrics and personalized health metrics grow, people are getting a lot of unfiltered health data. So they're getting 23andMe and, and a lot of questions about what that means. Now, a lot of my patients are getting whole body low dose MRIs and then catching things like a cyst in their kidney. What do you do about that? Uh, so there's this whole new kind of set of information. What I try to look for are the basics. Somebody comes to me with depression. I want to make sure you don't have an iron deficiency or, or folate or B12 deficiency. But I still think my best way to know you is to know you as an eater. And starting a little bit at the beginning, like how was eating for you growing up? What culture did you grow up in? Did you eat dinner with mom and dad every night? Did nannies make your meal? Were you hungry? Did you have food security? Uh, do you to your skills, you chop, you cook. I, I certainly want to think about what metrics we can use, how it helps people, right? Maybe I don't need a microbiome sample, but maybe you as a patient, it really motivates you to see, wow, my microbiome diversity sucks. That's really going to motivate me to eat more fermented foods. Or, But I would say in terms of knowing someone's diet, it's that art of medicine piece that really has gotten lost because physicians and, and clinicians in general don't have a lot of time with patients is asking them and asking them the stuff that like, but beyond what you eat, like, okay, that's interesting, right? Right now it feels like we have a lot of tools that just patients don't have access to that maybe aren't really getting employed as well as they should in terms of caring for our mental health. What, why is that? Why those available tools are just not being employed? Stigma is the number one. So simply to this thing that we're saying is easy, go to your primary care doctor, say, I'm really struggling in some way. Can we run some labs? They say, everything looks good. Maybe you're depressed. You say, yes, that's very hard for people to do. There's a stigma around medications. There's a stigma around talking about your mental health, even though we're improving, even with people who are very sophisticated consumers about mental health. The, the types of things you hear, you start someone on medication and then their family says, oh, are you sure you need that? It's stigmatizing, right? You hear about someone's meds like, oh, isn't that a high dose? Stigmatizing. And so there's a way that people don't really feel a freedom to try whatever they want because there's so much uh, negative assumption about treatment and, and efficacy. I, I think the other is just it's expensive, right? The majority of our mental health system in America fits into really two buckets, one bucket is community mental health, where the majority of our patients with severe mental illness are taken care of, mostly with Medicaid dollars. I guess there are three buckets. The other are, are clinicians mostly in private practice who often don't take insurance, particularly in urban areas. And then there's a third of companies and clinicians that take commercial insurance. And and I would say just people don't, if you're using your insurance, there's generally going to be a big wait list. Right. If you're not using insurance, there's going to be often a cost and access can be a little tough. And then I think there's a culture problem. You go to the primary care doctor, you're supposed to once a year, just check in. I don't have anything like that for mental health. You're not ever supposed to come and see me, right? A psychiatrist, God forbid, must mean you're really got problems. And so no one comes to see me preventatively, which is a huge miss. And you come to see me any stage of life, 
struggling, your relationship, your work, your communication patterns, your mood, your sleep hygiene, your diet, your motivation. I mean, that, that's all I talk about. I spent my whole career talking about those issues. And I can't wait to help you think about some strategies, some plans, some goals to clarify those, to be accountable a little bit to our process. And that's like really riveting stuff. But you don't get that because you haven't hit rock bottom with the suicidal depression. So you've never seen a mental health professional. So I think that part of our culture has to change. So let's change gears to talking about some of the business of nutritional psychiatry. My first question is, what are some of your favorite nutritional psychiatry startups or companies that you've seen in the marketplace? So at the top of the list are kombucha brewers in the sense that the expanding fermented food marketplace, Happy Leaf has a hopped kombucha that I think is a really effective tool for helping people Young bros and young gals, like lots of people love the IPA. So hopped kombucha is really nice. I really am interested in like a kefir and other fermented foods. And kefir labs is a great LA-based kefir maker that just makes a, a very like, if, if there is such a thing as hot kefir, I think that's it. I think some of the companies out there that are interesting in the nutritional psychiatry space, one would certainly be Zoe. Uh, Zoe is Tim Spector and Will Buskovitz, who's a GI doc. Tim is the most published microbiome researcher in the world, or most cited. And so when it comes to kind of food and nutrition companies, I'm quite interested in Zoe in part because their leadership has such deep science. I would say probably it's not a newer startup, but 23andMe certainly has been a very fascinating and powerful player in this space in mental health, not so much in nutritional psychiatry. It's a way to take your 23andMe data and run it through some filters to really get some, I'd say not yet useful, but super interesting information about our genetics. I'm interested to see what some companies do in terms of the mental fitness space. So there's a company, Koa, which's interested in at least one of the only other companies I know besides ours that's focused on mental fitness as a kind of mission. So, and then in terms of foods, I think there are a number of, I guess, brands that have done some really interesting things. I don't know the specific in nutritional psychiatry, but when I think about the food system, some of uh, the products that are really moving to like more pasture-based or rotational grazing systems. Uh, I have one more, which is this really exciting company that has a, a, a program, one of the first companies that kind of created a program and then sold it to insurance companies to show that they can decrease the rate of depression or the cost of the depression by teaching people some skills like meditation, uh, mindfulness, nutrition. Marrow really interests me because of the backstory coming at mental health from a kind of mental fitness perspective and then their ability to use numbers and big data. I, I thought that Marrow is probably of the kind of CEOs I've talked to over the past few years in the space that really has stuck out to me. I just want to mention one is bring change to mind, which full disclosure, I'm on the scientific advisory board, but it's one of, there are lots and lots of nonprofits in the mental health space. Bring change to mind create has created mental health clubs in high schools for over 15,000 students in the United States. And the other, probably my favorite, one of my other favorites, Brigade Danguistis nonprofit, Dan was a chef at Noma, which is like the number one restaurant in the world for several years running. Thank you for sharing that. Some of them we know quite well and some of them we didn't. So really useful. In On that line, which products or companies you wish existed but 
they don't. And this could be either a consumer product or company, or it could be something that you would use in your own practice or other physicians' practices could also adapt, right? That What do you see there that's kind of missing? I would say that the product we're working on in some ways is trying to create a brand around mental health that people trust. And if you think about it, what's the best mental health brand in America? Like what's the best mental fitness brand in America? When we think about the other aspects of health, you could rattle off a bunch of institutions. If I ask pretty much anybody, what's a great place for cardiology? Oh, the Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins, Harper, right? But when it comes to mental health, we don't really have brands that we trust. And, and that, that's something in terms of our clinical work and our growing team here in, in Jackson that, that we're hoping to start here and really see what we can do to think about mental health and mental health delivery differently. So there's less stigma, there's more empowerment, there's more optionality for patients, and, and there's more than just meeting us, right? That you can get a set of information and materials potentially that help you with your mental fitness. I love that. This idea of respected, loved brand in mental health that also patients, but also consumers, everyone gravitates towards is it's a dream. This inspirational brand in mental health is something that it doesn't really exist today. Uh, and, and I think that will change because we, we all agree here, I think, that mental health is becoming more and more of a priority for us as a society. And it's becoming a bigger issue and a bigger problem as well. So from both interest and lower stigma and more of a priority, all these are like good ingredients for a recipe of uh, um, a respected, loved brand in mental health. That's for sure. So in this idea of companies or products that don't exist. One that I've been thinking about for a while is, again, in my view, eating a healthy diet for some people, some folks that are working two, three jobs, maybe have a family, some of them are single parents. It's hard. And at the same time, we have really good evidence by now that a healthy diet and certain kind of nutritional interventions are life-changing for very acute, uh, serious mental illnesses like bipolar, for example. And one of the things I was thinking about is food delivery, a meal delivery service that takes care of all of those things. And if you think of the cost of that, it's quite expensive. But I do think that it could be even covered by Medicare because the cost of a bipolar patient that is untreated or it's treatment resistant is even higher. Those ER visits, those things are so expensive. I, I guess I'm, I'm just overall curious on how you think of these alternatives, right? It's not going to be as cheap as Prozac <laughs> in some ways, but also maybe that those are the ways to that we can lower the effort and the friction that it takes to eat one of these nutritional psychiatric intervention or like diets. And I, I also wonder if you're suggesting if there's like an on-ramping that's helpful. If you get some meals every week that help you try stuff, because it's easy to say eat more quinoa. If you've never made quinoa, you've never eaten quinoa and you're feeding your family, you're not going to go make like quinoa tonight just because I said it's good because it's a foreign food. You don't know if the kids are going to eat it. You don't know if you're going to like it. You don't have time for that. So the idea that you could get some amazing grain bowl delivered for the first, let's say, month or six weeks after you come out of the hospital, um, it, 
I, I think that would be quite interesting in terms of some research of how that would help patients transition from, for example, an inpatient stay to being an outpatient. But I think certainly there's a great, probably in terms of like businesses, I wish I had time to start and run. One certainly would be providing either certification or ideally food to inpatient and particularly private psychiatric hospitals with the notion that these places are offering very often costly experiences. They've got a good F and B budget. And when you're in a month of rehab, the idea that you're also getting the absolute best foods for your mental health and more than getting it, that you're also learning about it, right? You're learning about the link of those foods or, or diet to your illness. You're learning maybe some new techniques. We, probably my favorite venture we have is our I don't know if I say one of my favorite ventures is we have our free digital cooking class. The way that we scaled on one of the studies, the Healthy Med study that came out showed a group nutritional psychiatry cooking class essentially was effective in decreasing depression rating scores by like 45% in a, a study of about 215 people. And so we took that and we created a digital cooking class called the Mental Fitness Kitchen. And it, it, it's been really wonderful to, to bring people together. Uh, to cook. Some people cook on camera with us. We have a wonderful chef and health coach, Emily Burner, who sees a lot of our patients and she leads this just wonderful cooking class. Everybody gets recipes and encouragement. Um, but see, seeing more of, of that stuff, I would say, is part of what you get when you have a healthcare experience, I think is a potential opportunity, certainly, and a need. So what I was thinking is that we move on to a section that we call the rapid fire, where basically we ask really hard questions and then we challenge you to answer them in very simple, short, <laughs> in, a very, in a very short time. All right, I'm ready. I like this. I like the speed round. It's good. What's a go-to breakfast for optimal energy and focus? Coffee with half and half, hard-boiled egg with pesto. What is one of the most common misconceptions when it comes to food and mental health? It's expensive, complicated, confusing, and it's easy to get wrong. In truth, it can be budget-friendly. People in the SMILES trial saved $140 a month when they switched from a Western diet. We have a resource on our website, Brain Food on a Budget. Uh, but the misconception is it's expensive and it's hard and it doesn't taste good. What are misconceptions that are a little bit more subtle and usually the so-called experts get wrong? Okay, the experts are really wrong about turmeric. It has no medicinal value, even though there was a recent study showing it was equivalent to PPI, the Society of Medicinal Chemistry. There have been 2,000 clinical trials, none of which have been positive prior to this most recent trial. Uh, certainly the experts are very wrong about anti-nutrients. There isn't a human health concern about the consumption of lectins for everyone, basically, the kind of uh, um, idea that things like oxalates, for example, in kale are bad for your health is just actually kale is an, a low oxalate green. So uh, oxalates, lectins, turmeric. Um, I think people have ketosis wrong a little bit in the sense that there's this, it's like the nutritional trend that will never die because it's a really interesting and effective diet, for example, in pediatric epilepsy. But how it applies to clinical practice, how you help people eat keto-ish, I would say is a very polarizing thing. Those are maybe some of the more subtle 
I think people miss the connection between food, the microbiome, inflammation, and neuroplasticity. And this really subtle and nuanced relationship between, you know, we never thought about fiber as one of the most important and missing mental health nutrients in, in, until five years ago, I'd say. Mm. Thoughts on intermittent fasting? I think intermittent fasting is an example of keto-ish, where intermittent fasting is the idea that in some ways we're eating a little bit more like we used to, where food wasn't always plentiful and in abundance. You're also, as you are going through periods of not eating a lot of calories, the whole point of that is flexing into burning fats, breaking them down into ketones. And so intermittent fasting, I think, and eating windows, actually two techniques that I see a lot of patients have success with. Right? because it, it it gives them some clear parameters as opposed to some things that I think are more challenging, portion control, restrictive diets, elimination diets, things like that. You know, the idea that, hey, you're only going to eat from 11 to 6. A lot of people uh, are intrigued by that. What is a, a key reminder for people with a plant-based diet? Um that's a challenging one for me because I know a lot of people eating plant-based diets for moral, ethical, personal religious reasons. I think it's to note that a fully plant-based vegan diet is missing two of the most essential nutrients for human brain health. And I'm a fan of living a lifestyle where I create an environment or help create an environment, or maybe a better way to put it is I'm part of an environment where I can get all the nourishment my brain needs from food. Those are my values. So I'd say for people on a vegan and vegetarian diet, particularly the ones I'm most interested in who are struggling with their mental health, Vegans get hounded about bedroom B12 all the time, and so most know at this point. But we say that when you look at the Epic Oxford study, 52% of male vegans were B12 deficient. And so I think for all the vegans out there, ma making sure you take care of your nutrition and that you're eating a restrictive diet that isn't nutritionally complete for the human brain, we should stop. You need to eat nutritional yeast or have a B12 supplement. Right. And then I think for individuals struggling with their mood, to, to think about the omega-3 fats, you make omega-3 fats in your liver. It's not so clear that just like increasing the plant-based omega-3 fat ALA is that great in terms of more omega-3 fat production, but it certainly helps. And then there's an algal DHA supplement, algal oil that I think is interesting to trial or at least entertain thinking about. Should I keep eating Beyond Meat? No, I think Beyond Meat and artificial meats are a, a really bad idea. I think that there's a a huge cognitive dissonance going on when we think about lab-based meats, right? We're basically creating a processed another processed food. And and it's with the idea it's more environmentally friendly. And that's just simply not true. I would say that if there's something in the world that I consider particularly evil, it's artificial meats. I think that they're really, I think you should focus on making meat well, making it environmentally friendly, building carbon stores with prairie grasses, et cetera. And I don't think a lot of people know how to do that well, to be honest, or know about the science of that. I'm certainly not in any way an expert on that. But yeah, I find it to be an offensive, wrong particularly painful solution it offends me actually moralistically what is the main reason why psychiatrists are prescribing more nutritional interventions today 
because we've worked hard to cheerlead and, and trumpet all of the evidence at annual meetings and e-courses and in books. And there have been a few of us, myself, Umanadu, George Aedes, Emily Deans, Chris Palmer, who have been taking some of the great science of people like Felice Jacka and Amu Sanchez Viegas and the great researchers in nutritional psychiatry. And we've been writing about it. We've been treating patients with it. We've been talking about it at conferences. There have just been a number, I think, of individuals and organizations that have just taken, in some ways, with a little bit common sense, right? You eat better, you feel better, which is generally true for people. And I think that's led to people embracing this more. The, the biggest difference, though, over the last few years has just been the evidence. If you talked to me 10 years ago, I was much more twitchy and neurotic and like hedging, wishy-washy, because we had like correlational studies. Whereas today we have... I think six randomized clinical trials using nutrition to treat clinical depression. Are they the biggest, strongest trials? No. Are they good trials? Yeah, they're good trials. They're interesting trials. And so that's, I think we see more people doing it. Just there's more science, there's more talk about it. And therefore there's, and there's a huge mental health crisis. It's not like people's mental health get better. Yeah. And why aren't more psychiatrists prescribing these interventions? I think it's not that they don't see it as their job, right? That in general, doctors don't have the training or skills. But one of the reasons we created our e-course, it was the first ever clinician e-course for nutritional psychiatry, is just, there was no place to go and learn the evidence, to learn a technique, to talk about, to demonstrate like this, how I talk to patients about food, to debate things like gluten. I also think that in general, in the classic medical model, psychiatrists are really handcuffed. The classic model is all I do is meds. So I spend 15 minutes with you. I tweak your meds a little bit and I send you out. Nobody likes that model. It doesn't work very effectively. I mean, med management is, is that's helpful. I do it, but you know, to really be effective with people's mental health requires more time and usually requires more than just a medicine. What was your last fast food meal? It, it's either going to be like pizza at the local hand-fired pizza place or... I came out of, or a burger, no fries. I'm really having a problem ever since there was a study on acrylamide, zebrafish, and there's a UK biobank study. I've really, really not been eating French fries for about six months now. Yeah. To finish on a more optimistic note, we talked about how primary care doctors usually prescribe an SSRI. How do you envision first-line uh, mental health treatments change in the next five years? What would be a vision of what a PCP or a psychiatrist prescribes or effectively recommends in you know, one of the first visits that a patient may have with them? You know, if we're going to be radical, we should probably say PCP shouldn't be managing mental health. And that's no offense to my PCP colleagues. I just think they'd, they'd probably welcome that because it's so complex. It takes so much time. It's variable in terms of you need to hospitalize a patient psychiatrically. That, 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 is, a, that is a lot of time, attention, anxiety, texts, phone calls. That, that doesn't fit in a primary care doctor's schedule. And so and one of the shifts we probably need to, to have is thinking that we need a primary care for mental health. And maybe that's not for everyone, but if you have a mental health concern, having somebody who almost like you have an ombudsman, somebody who look out. A lot of times when I see patients in consultation, this is how I feel, where it's you get the kind of landscape of what's going on, what people have tried, and then you're really able to help see, hey, this is a little bit where you are. These are possible next steps. These would be some recommendations to really think about. So I think what we are going to see 
some more advanced diagnostics, particularly around how inflammatory kind of status is for affecting things, particularly like depression. Like if you look at some of the meta-analyses, they look at if you take an antidepressant with any type of anti-inflammatory, you get about a twice as good efficacy of the antidepressant. And so if you kind of try and translate that data then to lifestyle, the question is, how can we begin to identify and target things patients are doing that are increasing their inflammatory status? So I think we'll see more of that. I think certainly the new model is going to include the psychedelics, which is just hard to ignore the data. I've been, I would say, a little contrarian. Just you haven't needed psychedelics to do great work in mental health. That that said, having a clinic now that's delivering ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and again seeing some of the data. One of our clinicians, actually, Ashabji, who was just so proud, was just a part of the group that published this paper on a single psilocybin dose for major depressive disorder. Uh, we're really seeing these kind of new, somewhat groundbreaking studies. I think all of us who've been in medicine for a while, it was always feeling like, give me three studies, because the first one often looks great, but there's this long history we have in medicine. We, we have a breakthrough, something looks amazing, and then we have a hard time replicating it. I doubt that's going to happen with the psychedelics. I think the challenge is the application and the quality control of what's that difference between the biological effect of a psychedelic medicine and how how much can we extend that or improve that with the context and the psychotherapy that comes with it and that's a really that's a very that's a very active and hot question in mental health right now can our clinicians here delivering a relational psychotherapeutic model with psychedelics can we be more effective than the classic, let's say, IV model of ketamine for depression? Wonderful. I agree with a lot of what you're sharing there. Can we like more more kombucha and psychedelics at the same time while... There we go. <laughs> Fermented psychedelics. Well, psychedelic kombucha, maybe. This is Business Trip, a podcast exploring the future of mental health and wellness. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Symed Ventures. And if you're building a company in frontier mental health, hit us up at hi at symed.ventures, which you can find in the show notes. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Serebrinski. Our editor is Jonathan Davis, and production is led by Caitlin Nair. Sound design and engineering came from Nico Ray. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time.